Hello, TTB community. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint Podcast. Each episode, we like to bring you insight from travel authors, adventurers, conservationists, digital nomads, tour guides, and some of our very own personal travel experiences. Joining me today is the incredibly charming Robert Domena. Thank you, Elliot. So today we talk with Harry Mitsidis. He is uh, the founder of Nomad Mania. That's an online website that essentially offers all uh, uh, an array of tools related to travel, travel planning. He is rated number one on Nomad Mania, and and I believe he's in the top top five or top three on most traveled people. Yeah, he is an author. He wrote the Curious Case of William Bakeland, which is a fascinating story of a con man travel uh, expert. And yeah, we actually wrote... believe it or not, we actually did uh, cover a little bit about that story with Dave Seminar in episode one ninety eight. Yes, awesome conversation. And he also wrote the book Welcome to Home Hotel Nomad Mania. It's a fiction-based travel book. Uh today we talked to him about his travels to eastern Ukraine. We get into the people he met, the reason why he traveled there, and just uh general experiences in such a uh rough place. So, uh very interesting conversation. We hope you enjoy it. Before we get into that, though, we do have our travel tip of the week, and that is to pack some air tags. So my wife and I use these when we traveled recently uh, to Scotland. We each had one in our luggage. Uh, they're pretty awesome. We carried them with us. We had on, had them in our backpacks. I have one in my wallet, but really uh, awesome little tools to just track your luggage in the event that it does get lost. You can find it easily. And then lastly, check out some of the cool things that we offer. How do you organize and plan your trip? So if you like to keep your trip organized like we do, you can use the travel journal and planner that we developed for our very own personal travel experiences. This will allow you to record things like the dates, the budget, the top destinations, the currency exchange rate, the time difference. It has a fillable calendar and it provides you the ability to write out your entire itinerary by the hour. In addition to that, it has a place to store reservation information, a packing list, a to-do list. And then at the very back, it offers you space to journal about your trip. You can find this travel journal planner on our products page, and once you download it, you have it forever, and you can reprint and refill it out for every trip you have moving forward. Now, if you do decide to purchase this, we encourage you to reach out to us with any tips to make it better. To help compile all of your info for the journal slash planner, we turned ourselves into cartoons to create a five-part video course that provides a step-by-step -step process to create the ultimate itinerary, including number one, navigation, number two, booking airfare, number three, blogs, research, and reviews, number four, itinerary building, and number five, safety, cultural norms, and thoughtful travel. The goal of this video tutorial is so that you can become your own personal travel agent and learn how to be plan efficient trips now and forever, all the while saving you money to splurge on a nice meal or first class seat for your next adventure. Yep. Yeah, and now, so if you still think that planning your trip is a little bit too much, or you just don't have time to sit down and actually do it, I can personally plan your trip for you using all the information that we just mentioned. If you're interested in this, please send me an email at thetravelersblueprint at gmail.com or visit our service pages on our website, and we can meet over Zoom to discuss the details of your trip. You want to contribute to the podcast? If you work in the travel industry, you can join us for a travel roundtable discussion by submitting your information through the TAT form on our website. You can also send us a travel article via direct message or at thetravelersblueprint at gmail.com for the monthly Travel Bites episode. 
Support us by wearing us. Go to redbubble.com to find awesome gear and merchandise of the Traveler's Blueprint. Some of the cost comes directly to us to help support the podcast. We definitely recommend the hoodie and the hat and maybe a sticker or a travel mug. Whether you purchase a product from us or just want to learn about travel alongside us as we interview our guests, know that we greatly value your support as a listener of the show. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Harry, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. We're very excited to talk to you today. So you are the founder of uh, Nomad Mania, and that is an online platform, roughly 20,000 people using it right now. And uh, it's it's uh, a planning tool for independent travelers. Is that correct? Um, partially, yes. So what we do is we divide the world into regions, uh, and that is supposed to inspire people to plan where they should go next based on the regions that they get. But that's only a little bit of the story. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, well I guess we'll have to invite people to check it out themselves. You, you also wrote two books. Indeed. One, one, I'm actually familiar with the story. So the curious case of William, is that Bakeland? Is that how you pronounce his last Bakeland. name? Bakeland. Yes, the curious yeah. case of William Bakeland. Yeah. Yeah, the con artist, the traveling con artist. Definitely, yes. if you're listening to this, check that out. And welcome to Home Hotel Nomad Mania. Can you explain that one? <laughs> yeah, well, that one was just released a couple of weeks ago. So uh it's it's supposed to be a bit of a parody of our own travel community and the people who are obsessed about traveling all the time and it's an agatha christie-esque murder mystery so travelers start getting murdered in obscure places and uh, of course the, the survivors try to find who done it and the people <laughs> in it are real travelers they're well they're they're kind of fictionalized versions of real people including myself so it's all very silly but it's meant to be a kind of romp and hopefully it works as a murder mystery as well Sure, That's that fun. sounds that sounds very interesting. <laughs> and where can those books be purchased? On Amazon. So, okay, uh, very easy go. then. Nice and easy. Yeah. So, so uh, what we're going to talk about today, I guess we have a few topics here. Um, you are, and you're the perfect person for it. So you've now traveled to every country two times over. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. And and not only have you been to every country two times over, but you also focus on these really obscure regions of the individual countries, uh, which really it's. It's hard. It's it's hard to grasp for like the everyday traveler. A lot of the countries, even someone like myself and Elliot, who are highly passionate about travel, have never heard of. Uh, <laughs> some of these, yeah. Some of them I've never heard of, and it's it's phenomenally interesting. Um, what we're going to focus on today is your time in Ukraine. Uh, you've kind of dabbled in this dark tourism. Uh, traveling to dangerous locations. So we're going to get into that. And I'm, I'm, I have a lot of questions for that. Um, but before we do, you actually provided us with a bullet point on something that's very interesting to Elliot and I. And it's, it's travel as a means to develop uh, emotional and social intelligence. And so for those listening who listen often, Elliot and I have young children, and that's sort of the trajectory that we hope to put them on, teaching them about the world through travel. Uh, can, you, can you kind of get into that a little bit for us and explain what that means and why it's important to you? Um, of course. Well, I used to be a lecturer in the previous incarnation of myself, and one of the subjects I used to teach was leadership. 
And so because of that, I learned a lot about emotional intelligence because good leaders need to have it. And in fact, that is the, the skill that good leaders need to have the most, more than anything else. So I really got into this idea of emotional intelligence, its components, and, and what exactly it entails. And then through traveling, I realized that Everything about travel, if you do it consciously, is a way to develop your emotional intelligence. So on the one hand, emotional intelligence is about knowing yourself, understanding who you are. And I don't think there's a better way of doing that than putting yourself outside your comfort zone, uh, being in situations that you would not encounter in your quote unquote normal life and having to deal with them. And then, of course, also. Um, seeing what your limits are, how far can you deal with certain difficulties, where do you give up, uh, and how do you deal with disappointment, or uh, things like that. So I think travel is a really good way of knowing yourself. And then the other dimension of emotional intelligence has to do with other people. So how do you handle others? How do you, um, I wouldn't say the, the correct word is manipulate, but how do you deal with other people. And ultimately, a leader needs to inspire people. And that is the ultimate component of emotional intelligence. And again, through travel, I think this is the best way of, of doing it. I mean, where else would you meet people who are totally different from your own reference group, from your own culture, people who don't even speak your language? And then in a, in a foreign situation, you have to deal with that there's no way out. You know, you have to find ways of communicating. You often hear ideas that are totally outrageous and, you know, fighting them will not really get you any bonus points when you are in a different culture. So you need to kind of see to what extent you can negotiate your ideas so that someone else is still positive towards you. You know, you, you don't want to necessarily agree with things that are totally alien, but at the same time, you need to be able to maneuver yourself. So I think for all these reasons, travel is really the best path to developing emotional intelligence. I could totally see you as a, as a, as a lecturer. I think yes. I have an idea for your, your next book, too. I think you need to write some sort of family travel book on why families should bring their children on trips. You know, America could use that book. Do it for America. I'd love, I know you're I'd not around here, but... <laughs> I'd love to see even, like, a tracking of that. Like, um, there, what was the... There was a film series basically looking at the life of a child up and then basically cataloged it every four to ten years. And they so they've done a movie for basically the last four decades on this person's life from childhood to adulthood. But I would love to see the research tracking uh, children and their connection, their involvement with travel at a young age versus an introduction to travel later in life and to see how that changes their emotional intelligence, their social intelligence, right. and ultimately their intelligence. Yeah, well, that, that is extremely interesting. I mean, ultimately, when we, when you're young, you, you, you're like a sponge, you know, everything around you is absorbed. And obviously, travel is a way to not only learn tolerance, but to learn adaptability. 
So obviously, if you're a child and you're traveling frequently, you're then able to adapt anywhere. You're a real citizen of the world, even very early on in life. Of course, on the other hand, people will say, you know, children need stability, people need, children need friends, they need to be in an environment of routine. So, you know, there are always two sides of a coin. And, and I wouldn't go so far as to suggest that children only travel, you know, all the time when they're young, but certainly exposing them to this um, will definitely increase their ability to deal with diverse situations. Yeah. yeah. And I think one of the most interesting things we've had um, a few people on to discuss language and its relationship to travel and young kids have the ability to make all, every single sound a human can make from birth. Um, but it's not until we become older that we get accustomed to our own language that we start to lose the ability to make those other sounds. And travel yeah. exposes you to that. Yeah. And once you hear it, you can practice it. And if you're not doing that at home, if nobody's speaking like that at home, then you're not going to learn it. Yeah, totally. I do find it interesting how usually people from the English speaking world and that, but, you know, whether it's the US or Britain, it's the same. They tend not to speak other languages as much as people from some of the sort of continental European countries. And that may well be related to travel because, you know, Germans, French, you know, they they take a car and, and go on the summer holiday in another country in Europe. You know, so children probably pick up languages very easily and then eventually they they may become fluent in them. The Dutch speak English fluently, I think 97% of the of the people in holland speak english and then like more than 80 percent, i think speak a second language german or something so they're already you've got people with an advantage and they learn that very early on in life mm -hmm. yeah it's very cool it's fascinating yeah <clears throat> yeah when i was in norway recently i couldn't believe how many people just spoke fluent english and i i can't speak another language it's something that i always wish i, I did but uh, I'm your standard American here. Um, <laughs> all right. So, so Harry, I think we're going to shift gears uh, and get into something a little bit more darker. Uh, you recently traveled to Ukraine. You had mentioned before the show it was with a travel group. Uh, kind of, I know this doesn't really need any summary, but uh, obviously there's a war going on there. Really scary one with a lot of artillery, uh, shellings, um, drone attacks. This isn't traditional. Uh, I guess, or like historically traditional warfare where, where it's sort of confined to uh, the trenches, so to speak. Um, anywhere can be hit at any point in time um, from the sky. And so traveling to Ukraine anywhere uh, can be dangerous. Um, I, I Putin isn't shy from hitting Kiev every once in a while just to kind of, I think, show his force. Um, so what were you thinking, man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I know. I mean, um, we did get, uh, you know, a lot of comments when we advertised the trip. Um, but, well, let me start by saying we avid travelers who go everywhere to every country are obviously familiar with danger zones. So, you know, we, we know about trips to Afghanistan, Somalia, Iraq. Uh, when it was very dangerous. You know, these countries are 
everyday topics for us. And in fact, the more dangerous a country, the more enthusiastic we are about it, perhaps, because they are more difficult and challenging to get to. And that's where you need advice from other travelers. So this is not something that was totally new for us or unusual. Now, in terms of Ukraine, when the war broke out, Nomad Mania, um, the website I founded, took a very pro-Ukrainian stand from the very beginning. Um, and then over the course of uh, the year, uh, we we developed a partnership with a guy from Ukraine. So right now, in fact, the website is mainly run by a guy who's based in Lviv, Ukraine, uh, Orest. And so having him there, we already had a foothold. And he kept on saying, you've got to come to Ukraine. You've got to see that it's not as dangerous as you think. And also your visit is going to make a big difference to the people you meet. They're going to be inspired. And it's not just going to be a trip. It's going to be a trip with a lot of meaning. So finally, he did convince me. And uh, we advertised this. And we did get a group. Um, there, there were sort of different stages of the trip. Uh, we, we said we're going to cap it at 20 people in terms of going to eastern Ukraine, where the war is currently raging. Um, and we took the train and went all the way to Kharkiv, which has been severely damaged, but is still under Ukrainian control. And then we went two hours further east from Kharkiv to Izium, uh, which was under Russian control for six months last year. And, and the Ukrainians took it back in, uh, I believe it was September 2022. So uh, by going there and talking to the locals, uh, through interpreters, of course, we we truly had a meaningful experience. The people there were overjoyed to see foreigners taking an interest in what they've been through. And I think that really meant a lot to us. You know, we thought, OK, we're not here to kind of look around and just take our photos. We're here to really help people practically and um, emotionally as well. We were part of a convoy that gives aid. We went to a village that was totally devastated from which all the people left. Now a few of the families have tried coming back, but there's still problems with electricity, with running water, and they get aid packages. So we helped in delivering these packages. So in, in some ways, it was a very educational trip. Um, at the same time, we went to the areas around Kyiv that were under Russian control. So Irpin, Bucha, Borodyanka, these places were under Russian control for a month uh, in March of 2022. Bucha has become uh, notorious. It's, it's, you know, a, a town which suffered a lot where more than 600 people were killed, basically executed. Uh, we visited a harrowing quasi-memorial there. I mean, all of us were in tears. And again, we had local people telling us and explaining exactly what happened. So I think this was an extremely educational trip for us. It's very different to see something on the TV or read the news and quite different to see it with your own eyes and also put specific specific faces to the country. So now, you know, when we think of Bucha, I can actually picture the, the people who were giving us their stories. Um, and this really makes a difference because it humanizes everything. 
And then we went to Lviv, which is in the west of Ukraine. And I can say it was a pleasure to see how normal life is there. Um, yes, it still is dangerous. Yes, rockets can fall on you. But uh, Lviv is quite far west. The range of the rockets, uh, well, the, the sort of technology of it means that you will definitely have time to go into a bunker if the alarm uh, goes off. Um, and we, uh, in Lviv, we had the Nomad Mania Travel Award ceremony in a bunker. So we were quite safe there. And we did a bit of a gala, uh, sort of Oscarish type of event, where we also invited local representatives. And that was in itself significant, because for the locals, that means that there's a sense of normalcy, things are happening again. And it's not only them making an effort, but people are coming from abroad and uh, being enthusiastic about their country, uh, this this meant a lot to them. So I'm really glad we did the trip. I think all the people who came, and in Lviv we were about 30-odd foreigners plus quite a few Ukrainians. Uh, I think everyone really enjoyed it and also felt um, kind of inspired. And the Ukrainian people are really, really resilient and they're the sort of toughness, but also sweetness combined, this is really charming. So, yeah, <laughs> this is an example of a trip to the dark side, which for us was actually very enlightening. <clears throat> so so I, I, I'm familiar with a few of those places. <clears throat> what is the overall... <clears throat> um, you know, how are the Ukrainians speaking on... I guess the end game of this war. Do they feel uh, positive that Russia will ultimately be defeated? Do they have any? Are they even thinking that far out, uh, or are they just you know working from day to day? It's difficult to say. I think here there's a bit of a fight between uh, being hopeful and being realistic. However, the Ukrainians I spoke to were all very adamant about the fact that they will never give up no matter what, you know, as far as they're concerned, they'll fight to the last man for their territory. And there's no way they're going to enter any agreement. There's no way that they want to negotiate. They're like, this is our land and we want our land. And, you know, there's nothing to negotiate here. So um, I, I found a very tough, aggressive attitude there by almost everyone I met, including old grannies. You know, it, it wasn't like, people were scared in any way. Um, realistically, I don't know how this attitude is uh, viable, but there they are, you know, living their lives. I I don't think anyone expects this to end soon. Uh, but um, I, yeah, I think people are, are really uh, hoping for a victory, very, very much so. And, and, and people in those small towns <clears throat> that are now back in Ukrainian hands. You know, the the months, the weeks and the months after occupation and warfare, the people that remain, um do they is there is there a, a, a like a a drive to start rebuilding or is it are they still in survival mode? I think that depends very much on where we're talking about. So the suburbs of Kiev, for example, Irpin and Bucha, they were before the war sort of middle class 
suburbs, they are nice places, very leafy and whatever. They have already been totally rebuilt. We were shocked. There was barely anything to see or any any site, bomb sites to see. We did have a, a war tour. And in fact, they are preparing an itinerary for foreigners. We, we were the pilot group, but they're actually preparing a memorial guided tour where you can go and visit certain places. But in terms of the buildings in, in Irpin and Bucha, they have been almost totally renovated. There are very few traces of the war. And I think that has to do also with donations and the fact that all the foreign dignitaries who came to Kiev, because Irpin and Bucha are very near, they were all taken there and then they pledged donations. And so the rebuilding could happen very fast. In the east where we went to Izium, for example, that was devastating. That that was really bad. I mean, there were blocks cut in two, and many people perished there. Uh, I do not think very much has been rebuilt, um, and I don't know what the plan is. I think right now, because these places are still so close to the front line, I definitely think it's more survival mode and ensuring a certain stability of day-to-day -day life. I think. Obviously, a very small percentage of the population is there compared to before the war, probably 30%, maybe even that is uh, is optimistic. So the people who are there all have functional homes, you know, they're, they're not living in the ruins, but, uh, but I don't see those places being rebuilt that fast. No, no. Yeah, Izium is pretty close, man, to the, to, to the, to the front line, that's for sure. Um, yeah, that's about 30, 30 or 40 kilometers from the front. Yeah. Yeah. And were you and the group uh, ever in a situation where, you know, you're you hear artillery going off or you're worried that it's going to hit your location? By any way? No, I guess we we <laughs> we must be really lucky. No, we were fine. Uh, we never only in Kharkiv as we were leaving, literally as we were going to the train station, the sirens went off. Uh, but we were we were literally walking from our minibus to the station, um, and and the station has an underground passage. So I don't think we were exposed to danger. We were definitely lucky. We were very well aware of the fact that we're going to a war zone, and I don't think anyone was under any illusions. But um, we were told that um, everywhere that we were was beyond the range of artillery. So our danger would have just been rockets rather than artillery. And there don't seem to have been that many rocket attacks in those places in the last few months. There are a few, and there was one in Kharkiv a few days after we left, like the other day, but we were, we were definitely fortunate. Yeah, it's pretty intense. And, and, and being with this group, are they, you know, one, I guess my first question would be like, who are they? What types of people are, are, are coming on this group? With <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and why do they want to go? And then um, two, is there, is there sort of some general consensus among the group like that you may die and like you're all comfortable with that and to some degree? Well, we got everyone to sign a disclaimer and I, I, I <laughs> so Orest, who is from Ukraine, was extremely positive and kept on sort of repeating the message that you are going to be okay 
people live their lives there every day and, you know, they do not panic. And that is true. I mean, people do live there and their lives are going on. So, you know, you are not so special. That is what Oris kept on saying. I was much more alarmist. So, you know, I kept on sending messages saying, you know, <laughs> make a will, make sure that you are very aware. And we kept on saying, you know, if you don't feel comfortable with this, you can, you know, you can cancel. That's fine. Now, the, the group itself was extremely diverse, just like Nomad Mania itself is diverse. We had ages from 22 to 67, no more, 70. So, you know, we had like a really big range in terms of ages, also in terms of nationalities. Uh, there were quite a few Americans and strangely a large number of people from Denmark. Uh, we also had people from the Netherlands, the UK, Austria. Um, so as I said, we were about 20 people. Uh, there were more Americans than um, than anybody else. There was only one woman, uh, the wife of the traveler who came. So uh, I guess this was really male dominated. Now, why did they come? Um, I think for most people, it was the way we had presented it. It was an opportunity to get to understand the situation firsthand, to meet the people, to appreciate their resilience, and also to spread a message, um, you know, that they're not alone, that we are interested in them. And I think all the people who came felt that very strongly. Obviously, everyone who came is uh, very pro-Ukrainian um, and, and sees the injustice in this war. Um, so I think they left feeling even more pro-Ukrainian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet. Can, can you share any individual stories with people that you've met um, and and have talked to? Anyone in particular that comes to mind that um, has some sort of harrowing story? Well, I think for me, the most poignant story was in Izum. We went to the site. I'm not going to say exactly where because this is sensitive, but we went to a place where they build camouflage for the soldiers. And they is a group of local women of all ages, so from teenagers to old grannies. Uh, and there they are, you know, suing, camouflage, putting leaves on a sort of huge basket so that then it looks like it's a tree. And, you know, there they were silently, doing their job you know when we went and and observed them and uh, it's just one one of the ladies was particularly communicative I, I will never forget her because she was um you know she, she was made up she was wearing little earrings you know she must have been about 65 you know but i found it interesting how she made an effort to look good while she was you know putting camouflage on the basket and then, then she got talking to us and she said Please, you know, tell your people that we are here. We need your help. That we, um, you know, these are our lands. We never hurt anyone. We never uh, did anything wrong. We were invaded. They came and they destroyed our homes. People were killed. We never had any military installations in this town. And, you know, people were killed hiding in the basement. And then she started crying, you know, because you could see how emotional she got. Um, so I think that encounter was particularly poignant. The other one was in Kharkiv. We visited um, a place where children uh, 
are schooled kind of like a daycare center because all schools and kindergartens have stopped operating there for security reasons and they only operate online. And then you've got these parents who don't know what to do with their children because the parents must work. So there was this NGO which offers uh, sort of a daycare service and we went and saw the children and they had all painted little drawings for us you know with various rainbows and you know how children paint things and i mean we were all in tears because the kids were so sweet uh they were just ordinary kids but there they are you know facing air raid alarms on a daily basis um and and it's just the the unfairness of it just strikes you and this is why the strip was important because now we actually know the people we can put a very clear face onto what Ukraine is. When you when you meet these families, especially the ones that still have children, have you did you ever ask them or do you know why? You know, I I've always been curious, like why do some people stay? And I you know, and I know that there is a laundry list of logistical and financial reasons and beyond that um that are why people can't or don't leave. Um do you do you have any information on that? Because to me, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, if it were me, and obviously I don't truly know what, would, what I would do and how I would react, but I think I would try to leave. And so, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm curious, you know, why do some people stay in war zones and you can try to continue well, life? I, I Look, what happened, remember we're one and a half year into the war now, or more, you know, it's, it's almost two years. But I believe that initially many people did leave. Um, especially from there, because obviously they they didn't know what was going to happen. But over time, um, I mean, Kharkiv used to have almost 2 million people, I think, you know, greater Kharkiv. It's not a small town. It was the sec it still is the second biggest city in Ukraine. So we're talking about a major urban conglomeration. Um, I think people just say, if we all leave, then we've already let them win. So it's up to us to be here and to say, these are our homes, we are staying here. This is the kind of attitude I got of resilience and defiance. So we will not leave. And I believe that even people with children feel that, you know, they're like, okay, I am putting my family through hell, but ultimately this is for a, a larger cause. And that cause is, that this is our country, this is our home, and if everyone leaves, then they will take it. So that is probably the underlying rationale. Yeah, that's extraordinarily complicated. You know that that psychology. <clears throat> we could we could have a whole podcast series on that. That's it's, it's really interesting. I think Ukrainians are really really tough. Uh, I think also their history is full of changes of sovereignty, you know, this is not the first time that they have fought. Um, because we learned a lot about their history, going back to the 14th century and 16th century. So Ukraine actually means kind of border zone. That's the name of that. So, so they have always been a buffer in a way. And I think being aware of that, they are ready for what what they need to do. I think many of us in the West, we don't have necessarily the same understanding. And and also for us, safety is paramount. You know, we will do anything to 
feel secure or for their illusion of feeling secure. I think there they have a very different understanding of what life is. That's a good point. Yeah, and and for people who who may not know, but the the full context of this conflict goes well beyond what happened just two years ago, uh, specifically in the Easter region. That that there's been intense fighting there for I don't even know how long, but I know this wasn't from the for, from the perspective of a lot of Ukrainians in that region. Um, Russia had already invaded well before it was a headline in Western media uh, just a few mm-hmm. years ago. You know, obviously the the uh, the what happened, or I'm sorry, like how Russia uh, went about things increased significantly. But the fighting's been there. Um, this isn't Ukraine's first run-in with Russia, that's for sure. And so, yeah, yeah, kind of like further to your point, you're right. I can see how this um, they kind of accept it as part of life and uh, the resilience. The resilience of the Ukrainian people, man, I don't think anybody in the world can, can deny that at this point. I'll never forget when Russia first invaded, and I'll put that kind of in quotes because of what I just said. But um, seeing seeing Ukrainian citizens make uh, Molotov cocktails and sort of come to arms and uh, you had average people. Uh, I, I remember watching interviews with like school teachers and similar occupations being handed firearms to kind of run to the front line and push push them back um sort of arm kiev in those first few days of the war and they did it they held off kiev i i I, no one really expected the war to still be going on um i'm sure the ukrainians did i guess but a lot of people saw this as a complete russian takeover that would take just a few weeks um and so the resilience of the ukrainian people man uh, no, they're really amazing. They've they've risen to the occasion again. One one memorable anecdote um, when we were in Borodyanka, which was also under Russian occupation. So now they've kind of built a sort of makeshift small museum with war things. And so there was this lady who was touring us into this museum, and she said that she used to be an artist, and th- that now museum used to be her studio, and. You know, you could see she was this ordinary lady, you know, in her 40s, very, you know, you you would never think. And then she was taking the shrapnel and showing it to us, you know, taking the bullets very casually as if it's a totally everyday sight and explaining to us what happened. And I, I just thought this is so incongruous. You know, here you have this this middle-aged average lady, you know, and she's totally normal, you know, showing us the pieces of shrapnel. Um and and that is why I think Ukrainians feel they will win. I think they believe, you know, they say we have the spirit and nothing will break us. We are unbreakable. And and this idea of unbroken and unbreakable is everywhere there. Yeah. 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 And another thing you have to consider, you know, Russia, just because Russia holds land doesn't mean that that land is Russia. You know, they, they Russia can say whatever they want about it. But uh, to break a culture <clears throat> um, takes a lot more. Yeah, well, I mean, you could say that about Crimea too, right? That was only nine years ago that Russia annexed Crimea, and many Ukrainians and most of the U.S. still regard it as an occupation of Crimea that is Ukrainian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. Um, can can you kind of speak more to this dark travel in general? I know uh, you've been to multiple war-torn areas um and i'm I'm trying to figure out a way to, to sort of word this question but for travelers 
you know, what is what I guess, what is I guess the appeal to go to these places? Um, is there something that is you know missing in the traveler who has already been to Paris and Rome? You know, how do you get <laughs> to a point as a traveler where you're now looking towards these incredibly dangerous countries? Okay, well, 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 let me start by saying that I, I want to see everything and go everywhere. So, you know, it's not only about dangerous countries. I think inevitably people get more fascinated by this, you know, and then, of course, again, then you get criticized and people are very easy to say you're crazy or, you know, whatever. But, but you know, we do go and, and I personally go to Paris as well. Now I'm in Skopje, North Macedonia, a very quiet, very pleasant place, you know, so it's not like I only go to dark places. But if you want to go everywhere, then you also want to go to the dark places. That's how I see it. And some of us avid travelers see it that way. Now, um, for me, uh, I studied sociology, and I always look at the world as a sociologist, trying to understand culture, politics, how people live. So I think I am personally fascinated by war, not in terms of the war itself, but in terms of what happens after the war and how do people cope with it? How does life uh, continue or not continue after the war? Um, and, and that's what I look for when I travel into some of the dark places. At the same time, I do feel it is a tribute to some of the people, um, you know, going to a war memorial or to a cemetery, I think to a certain extent is our duty as people, because some of these people fell for a greater cause, um, and we need to honor them for that. And so I uh, you know, I always get quite emotional when I go to World War II memorials. And for me, those are also dark places. You know, they, they may not be actively dark now, but those people died so that we can be free. And I think it's important that we honor that and, and don't only focus on shopping malls or beaches or archaeological sites. You know, um, I I do think that the appeal, though, is sort of seeing devastation and how life still persists after it. I think that is probably the key to why people may be interested in dark places as they are dark, you know, now. Yeah. Uh, so one thing is, I've got two things. One is, I think it is very important that people do visit those memorials, cemeteries, hear the stories. And like you said, it is, it's good to understand that they fell for us to have certain rights and privileges. And it's also important to feel those emotions of, of death and longing and you're missing that person because otherwise we would just continue to have unnecessary wars and killing. And I think in, you know, it's 2023, this, Bob and I have talked about this before, the Ukraine-Russian war is one of the first that has seen this mass social media presence. And unlike the, uh, in I guess, conflicts in the Middle East, there haven't been as much social media, either TikTok videos or Instagram videos or Facebook videos for everyone to see it and be uh, exposed to it like it was almost shielded in the past and you only saw 
the major headlines of a battle in a newspaper and maybe a singular photograph, not an average day person um, running away from a tank or being shelled. All the soldiers are wearing GoPros. It's it's yeah. uh, disturbing and eye opening. I don't know. It's... It is, and if we, it, I think you've talked about it in the beginning of this, and I think you've talked about it, and most of your um, support for travel that having that emotional and social intelligence coming from travel, that is part of it. Like knowing that you could die, and knowing the feeling that you. If you take someone else's life, that's a big thing to do. And times have definitely changed. I don't think we see as much conflict. It is dwindling as we become more civilized and less tribal. But there's still situations like this. There's still the Israeli-Palestine conflict that uh, when, if ever, will it end. Yeah, yeah. Well, you see, travel is a broad spectrum of things. Um, I think the tourism industry sometimes um, illustrates travel in a very specific way. Like, you know, you go on a cruise, you're going on the beach, you know, it's sort of glamorous, and that is what travel is about. But, But for me, that's really not, you know, that's like, it is a piece of it. And yeah, I have been on cruises and enjoyed them very much. So it's not that I don't do that part, but I certainly think that travel is much more. And if you really want to call yourself a traveler, a lot of it has to do with education and opening your eyes to everything there is in the world. And that includes darkness and war and sadness and loss. Mm-hmm. One of the... I, you talked about this in the beginning about why you went to Ukraine, but I imagine some of the criticism of dark travel is that it is inconsiderate and you may be exploiting to be able to visualize what other people are going through and you essentially don't have those issues, so you're trying to experience them. Um, I imagine you get those comments a lot when you go to Afghanistan or Ukraine or Libya, any of those conflict-torn countries? To a certain extent, but you see, the the answer to that is that in Ukraine, the people were happy we were there. So the locals welcomed us with open arms. You could see that they wanted us there. So I think in that sense, I don't think there's any moral dilemmas about it. You know, if the people there are happy with it, then it's definitely morally okay and just to do it yes it's true that i I would never go to an active war zone i would never go to like active in the sense of you know there's there's artillery fire now and Mm -hmm. i would obviously never go to a place where i I would not personally go to the russian occupied areas right now of ukraine because there you know the situation is very different i think and i do think that that is um morally dodgy um i wouldn't feel comfortable with that you know that that opens a totally different theme of what is or isn't ethical in travel and and i don't think there's ever uh, you know an 100% answer i think you need to at least be aware of these ethical questions and ultimately try to find out the facts and make some decisions on your own when i visited afghanistan um which was not during the Taliban rule. So it was 
uh, after 2001, so when it was quote-unquote democratic. Um, again, I felt that the people were very happy to see me there, very curious. Uh, and one thing that always warms warms me and never gets old are the children who come running and, you know, you give them some sweets and they are so happy. That kind of image that happens even not in war zones, that replicates yeah. itself in a lot of these settings. And that's always heartwarming. So I think... If we are ambassadors of goodness and, and we try to give people positivity, even in dark places, this is then a good thing. Would you consider, would you consider uh, areas that have been devastated by natural uh, events also dark tourism? Because just recently, oh, totally. Bob and I have discussed this on our uh, monthly news segment. The Hawaii wildfires, there seemed to be a division between locals of people, of locals not wanting people to come, but also on the other side of it, locals wanting people to come to help them recover because they were, they rely on tourism for a large portion of their income. Yeah, yeah. Well, clearly natural disaster sites are also part of the dark tourism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I have been to a few of those. Um, uh, I visited Banda Ace, which was hit by the tsunami. It was the most devastated area of the tsunami. And I think there, the issue is not whether it's good or not to go, but it's when you go. So obviously, you do not go there immediately after the disaster when, you know, to actually Look, be an onlooker of, of human devastation. But yeah. yeah, you can go maybe after a certain time has elapsed when when it's okay to go morally. In some cases, they put up memorials and museums. In, in Banda Atseh, there was a tsunami museum by the time I went. And I think that is perfectly okay. And, and they are happy to see you there. I, so, yeah, I, I, I like what you said about um, traveling to these places and then sort of showing that there's still like the, the, the good parts of humanity sort of prevail when the dust settles. And I, you know, I, I don't live in a war zone, so I don't want to speak for people that do, but it seems as though they don't want this war or this natural disaster to define their country or their culture. They want to move past it. And so having people who sort of act as these, you know, amateur ambassadors for, you know, the United States and they come and they, they experience life uh, with these people and they talk to their children and they eat with them. And, um, and then they bring that information back and they, sh or they share it online, you know, and they show that, you know, hey, look, this place was war torn. Uh, it was tough, but ultimately good people prevailed. Um, positivity prevailed. Family, um, these families are, are are moving on, and you know, here, like, look, this is this is this is beautiful, and there's sort of light at the end of the tunnel for these places. And uh, in a way, what you do, this these dark tourism, uh, this dark dark tourism industry, kind of uh, shows that, right? And and I find that awesome. Uh, I do. Yeah, well, this is something we talked about with people in Ukraine. And, and they said, you know, obviously, the war has happened. And this is not something that we can erase. But we don't want people to come to Ukraine only because of the war. You know, Ukraine has a lot of cultural heritage. It's got a lot of beautiful cities and a lot of 
worthy natural sites. And, and we want to show the world how beautiful Ukraine is, uh, also try our food and all that, not only focus on the war. So I do think it's need that 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 is essential, you know, to to try to maybe put dark tourism um into like um sort of it's part of the experience of travel. It's not the only thing you experience when you travel. Yeah. Yeah. I, w I went to uh, Croatia. I, so I went to the former Yugoslavic nations um, <clears throat> two decades after the war had ended. And I would talk to people there and I met people my own age and their parents were essentially the ones fighting in that war. Um, mm. And I'm in my mid thirties. And so uh, talking to them, you, you could still see that it obviously had a significant impact on them because a lot of them lost parents in that war. Um, but it would be discussed. Uh, I would ask them questions about relationships with people from different countries. And I'm, I'm speaking really of my time in Croatia. Um, there's still tensions between the Croats and the, the Serbs. Um, but uh, ultimately, like they, we would talk about it. They would tell me about it. I would visit war museums and then they would, it would kind of turn and say, but you know, this is what we do now. And uh, and I would experience those great things with them. They would, you know, they would be proud. Like this is, we, we built it back up. And now Croatia specifically has this booming uh, tourism industry. Um, and they were proud of it. They were proud of it. It's a beautiful country, culture, everything. And so um, just kind of my own experience with not necessarily dark tourism, but kind of getting a feel for a country that went through horrors and kind of came out on top and is thriving now, decades later. Yeah, yeah, and and Rwanda is another example of that. Mm -hmm. So Rwanda, which went through a horrific genocide um, thirty years ago, and I mean now it's one of the most welcoming, most beautiful, and most safe countries in Africa. So when you go there, kind of by default, you will visit the genocide museum, which was in fact recently inscribed into um, the UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Those genocide sites were became World Heritage Sites because of their importance for humanity. So you will be exposed to that, but then you're going to experience sort of the rest of Rwanda, and you'll see that the war doesn't define the country anymore. It's much more than that. Yeah, You're truly fascinating stuff. Um, yeah. I could talk to you all day, Harry. Um, so, so, and we may, we may have to get you back on because there's just so many topics that we can get into. Uh, I'd love to actually get more into your books one day. Um, because, because we're starting to wind down, I want to come back and kind of go full circle, um, and, and talk a little bit more about the platform you created, uh, and essentially just, you know, tell us what travelers can get out of it. If, if people are listening to this podcast, most are travelers of some form in some form, um, how can they sign up and then really what main benefits can they get from it? All right. Well, first of all, signing up is free. You know, we are a nonprofit, so we don't make any money. You just go to nomadmania.com and, you know, make a profile and then fill in the places you visited. That is kind of fun. What you get is a cool map. And if you add the years of when you visited a region, then you're going to get like a sliding map. So you can go back to your childhood and then gradually as the years go by, you can see how much more of the world you've done. That's my favorite feature of the site. Um, we do have a number of lists. We have um, 
for each region, and we've got 1,301, we have individual pages. And in those, we have lists of what you can do and see in categories. So we've worked a lot in order to make these categorized in a rational way. So if you're interested in caves, you can go to what we call the cave list. We call them series, and you can find like 800 great caves, and then they are categorized by country. So I believe the site is a very good orderly way of seeing what there is in the world, the best of, of what countries offer. Uh, at the same time, if you want to travel to a difficult country, we have information on local people who have been recommended by other travelers and are known to be good. So if you want to have a trip to Angola, for example, and don't know how to start, we've got people in Angola who are reliable and experts. You contact them, they can help you travel. So I think that is a very concrete, helpful way for travelers to um you know, uh, get get the most out of uh, traveling to difficult places. We are now working on creating a bit of a more uh, interactive platform so you can befriend other travelers. In that sense, it is going to become a little bit of a uh, tight-knit community. We also have our own trips, which are run not for profit. Um, and we do some spectacular trips like no one else does, not only to dark places like we did in Ukraine. I recently had a, a great trip to Armenia. We're, we're planning a trip to Algeria next year. And finally, we offer scholarships to people who've never traveled in underprivileged countries. So this is the vision in terms of being a nonprofit. We want to make travel more democratic um, and find people because exactly we believe travel is the best education to develop as a human being. So we recently sent two young ladies, uh, students in Rwanda, who had never been on a plane, never been abroad, and they had their first trip to Tanzania. It may not be so far, but for them, this was an incredible experience. And as an individual and human, this is what makes me happy about Nomad Mania, that you know, we may not be very famous yet, but you know, we can make a difference to some people. Um, and this is what we strive to do more of. That, that sounds awesome. like a, a fascinating and awesome platform. And I, I have a lot of admiration for you for sort of turning your, your passion for travel into something that you're now working to give back to people and sort of teach them. That's, that's mm -hmm. an incredible uh, endeavor. And so thank you for contributing that to the world of travel. Uh, thank you for letting me spread the word. Yeah, of course, of course. And then and then uh, quickly, um, if we can, I also want to just touch up on the two books that you have. And I know we did in the beginning and um, I, you kind of actually already did go into Hotel Nomad, Nomad Mania. But can you give us like the three sentences or whatever it is on on William Bakeland? Because that story is fascinating. And before before we get into William, do you know Dave Seminara? Yes, of course. We've even okay. traveled together. Yeah, oh, he okay. was on the podcast before. So Dave Seminar was on the podcast and Charles Bailey of Most Travel People was on our podcast as well. Yeah. So, well, yeah. and Dave, Dave actually did a, a book, I think, shortly after yours, um, discussing uh, William yes. Bakeland as well. Mad Travelers. That's what the yeah. book is called. And in yeah. fact, in my in my second book, the fictional one, Dave is a character in the book. Oh, so awesome. he's a journalist 
trying to piece the murder mystery together. <laughs> and I reference his book in in the book. You know, that's so fantastic. There's a lot of little bit things like that. So yeah, um, yeah well, William <laughs> William is this mystery man who managed to fool us all by pretending he was the heir um, of Bakeland, who is a character who, like, a century ago invented Bakelite, the precursor to plastic. So we all thought that he was the grandson or great-grandson of this billionaire. He acted the part. He convinced us all. And then he organized some trips. Some of them did did go ahead. Many of them didn't with weird excuses. And then eventually we discovered that a million, probably something near to a million dollars was lost. So travelers had paid for trips that never materialized. And he had probably uh, managed to get richer by about a million dollars. I was the person who uncovered the truth uh, accidentally in a way. Uh, It's not like I wanted it, but it just happened that I was the one who pieced it together. And and then I thought I have to write a book about it because it's just so bizarre. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 Oh, awesome. Incredible. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, Harry, this has been an awesome experience. Oh, wait. And, and those books again are on Amazon. Um, yeah. Again, yeah, Harry, this is, this is great. And, and I hope we can do it again for, for a different topic, just because you have so much knowledge and this was just so much fun. Um, before we let you go though, we do have a rapid fire round series of five questions give us uh the first thing that comes to mind um you don't necessarily have to answer them immediately so if you want a few seconds to think about it feel free um ellie do you mind if i get started first not at all go ahead so uh what is the first word when you hear or what is the first word that comes to mind when you hear the word travel freedom and what travel book had the biggest influence on your life Oh, <laughs> oh dear, you got me stumped on that. Um, beating the Moldovans at tennis. <laughs> what? I, all right, explain that one. Uh, it, it's just such a fun book. And uh, yeah, it did have a big influence on my life because I started seeing travel in a much more humorous way, taking it much less seriously. So. Beating the Moldovans at tennis. I'm putting that on my... A must read. So entertaining. Yep. All right. And that is that is by Tony Hawks. <laughs> yeah. Not yeah, Tony yeah. Hawk. Read it and tell <laughs> yeah. me what you think. You, you're going to like it. It's, it's a weird sure. one. Okay. All right. Um, all right. All right. Uh, next up. So what is one practical thing travelers can do right now to enhance their next travel experience? Learn more about their hometown so that they can be better ambassadors when they go away. Oh, wow. I like that answer. Nice. That's, that's fantastic. That's awesome. We've had a lot of guests and everyone seems to come up with a different one and a good one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is awesome. All right. Number four, on the flip side of that, what is one thing travelers should not do? They should not go away from their comfort zone, expecting it to be like what they know. In other words, they shouldn't have their own preconceptions about what life should be like. Okay. Yeah. And and the last one, what is one piece of advice that you would give to yourself 10 years ago? Piece of advice? Ooh. Uh, do more of Ukraine while it's safe. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah. That's great that's, advice. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Yeah. All right, Harry. Well, Harry, it has been a pleasure talking with you, and we look forward to having you back on the show. Um, I would love to be back. Thank you very much. Take care. That was an awesome episode. I really enjoyed talking with Harry, and I'm really glad. I, we got to it at the very end of the conversation, talking about some of the tours that he runs. But the fact that it's nonprofit, I think, allays any of the concerns I had about exploitation whenever traveling to these uh, dark or conflicted areas. Yeah, it seems like everything is is geared towards an awesome cause. That was um, sobering. You know, I think one of the biggest takeaways is... um realizing how lucky we are to not be going through that yeah no it's i I think we've had this conversation before this is this conversation now this outro is taking a little bit of a turn and got real uh sentimental or uh existential but yeah, I mean, we have a lot of privilege in the United States. Yeah, we sure do. Let's hope uh, Let's hope there's peace soon. So let's thank hope. you for listening to the podcast. And if you enjoy the show, stay healthy, stay safe, and tune in next week.